Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. On April 11th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln addressed a crowd gathered outside the White House. He spoke not of recent victories or of those to come, but to the shape of the peace that would follow. Now that the 13th Amendment had been passed by Congress, he urged that it be ratified. Moreover, it seemed to him, Lincoln said, that it was necessary for the colored man to have the right to vote. I myself, Lincoln told the crowd, would prefer that it were now conferred on the very intelligent on, the, on those who serve our cause as soldiers. That might now seem like a timid suggestion, but not to one man then standing in the listening audience. When John Wilkes Booth heard Lincoln's words, he turned to a companion and vowed, that's the last speech he will ever make. It was not the fall of Richmond, the flight of the Confederate government, or the surrender of Robert E. Lee that finally made Booth decide to act, but the threat of black suffrage. With me to discuss the cause of black suffrage in the month in following Lincoln's death is Paul D. Escott, Reynolds Professor of History Emeritus at Wake Forest University. He's the author of numerous books, including Slavery Remembered, a record of 20th century slave narratives, The Worst Passions of Human Nature, White Supremacy in the Civil War North, and most recently, Black Suffrage, Lincoln's Last Goal. Paul Escott, welcome to Historically Thinking. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So um, what was the background for Lincoln's last speech? Um, for a generation, maybe longer, uh, scholars, and I think it's popularly accepted that uh, in the words of Barbara Fields, I think this is from the Ken Burns uh, Civil War miniseries, that, that enslaved people made themselves a problem by coming into the Union lines, a problem that could only be solved ultimately by emancipation. Um, were free people in the run-up to April 1865, were they making themselves a problem such that they that a problem that could only be solved by giving black men the vote? Black people, North and South, were actively working for their rights uh, during the war. We only have to look at the Northern abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and others, uh, and some of the white allies to see how effective their arguments were. Uh, after all, Douglas said from the beginning of the war that slavery was the cause of the war and attacking slavery would have to be the key to ending the war and saving the Union. Uh, he called the use of uh, black men as soldiers the pivot of the war. And he believed that as soon as uh, black men joined the effort to save the Union, that they must be given their rights. He argued for this uh, constantly, as did black leaders who had been meeting for decades in a convention movement. Every so often they would get together in a large city, uh, talk about their race and about their aims and their problems. Uh, and they were calling for the right to vote and for equal rights as a result of the contribution that almost 200,000 uh, black men made to the union cause. Uh, it was uh, true too that even in the South uh, where uh, slavery continued in many places to exist until after the war was completely over. Uh, black people were seeking their rights and demanding them as soon as they could. Uh, in January, in occupied portions of Louisiana, 
black people assembled and demanded the right to vote. Uh, and as 1865 went on, following Lincoln's death, black people in the South would be very active, uh, calling for their rights and uh, demanding it. Uh, as part of this background that you ask about, I think we need to know too or realize that Lincoln had a, an increasing amount of contact with black people during the war. He met not only with Frederick Douglass and Northern leaders, but with Southern leaders too, such as Abraham Galloway from North Carolina uh, and a, a delegation from the state of Louisiana. He was impressed by these people and by the justice of their call for equal rights. Uh, he also sometimes stopped in at the uh, contraband camps that were near Washington, D.C., and all of these had an, an impact on his uh, feeling and his emotions and helped him uh, decide that uh, it was important to move forward. Uh, so that by 1864, uh, by late 1864, I think he had realized that colonization was never going to go anywhere and that black people uh, deserved their rights. Uh, so this statement that he made just before he died was an important one. Uh, I think we can assume that had Lincoln lived, he would not have gone backward. He would have worked for uh, black rights, uh, and we would have had a very different situation than the one we had when Abraham, when Abraham Lincoln died and Andrew Johnson succeeded him. Um, one of the problems that Lincoln presents is uh, he is... Uh an American president, American president who's most unites the idealist and the realist. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, people at the time, uh, the idealists misunderstood him as being a, a stupid realist and realist mistook him for a, a cloth headed idealist. And historians have often had the same problem as well because he combines both. So uh, um, that much misunderstood uh, observation of his, that public opinion is everything. <laughs> um <laughs> Something like that um, that petition by blacks in Louisiana would mean a lot to Lincoln as he t you know continually finds ways of taking the pulse in an era before opinion polls of of what people are thinking and how he can use it or drive it or divert it or multiply it. These are things that mean a lot to Lincoln. I could imagine that must have made a, a big impact on his deciding how to how to maneuver his way forward. It is well known that fairly early in 1864, he had privately recommended to Michael Hahn, the governor in occupied parts of Louisiana, that uh, action would be taken to give black people a right to vote. Nothing came of that. But it's less remembered, and it's probably more important, that in December of 1864, he was negotiating with Charles Sumner and other leading uh, advocates for black rights in the Congress about what the conditions would be for states to re-enter the Union. He really wanted the government that he had started to uh, create in Louisiana to be able to enter the Union as it was. But leaders like Sumner and, and others who were calling for black rights wanted to require that uh, any southern states that, that were re-entering um, the Union would have to allow black suffrage. And Lincoln had uh, come around to an, a possible agreement on that. Unfortunately, over the Christmas holidays, the support for it fell apart in, from different elements of Congress. But that too shows that before his last address, 
Lincoln had been thinking seriously about the need to give black men the right to vote, or at least to give some black men the right to vote. And he then came out publicly for it before he died. So Lincoln is then murdered. Um, and there is, in your book, you have a almost a week by week <laughs> uh, story of what then happens to the cause of black suffrage over the remaining months of 1865. So in the outpouring of grief, shock, hysteria, um, uh, what is the immediate effect upon a political movement towards black suffrage? In April, the atmosphere is mainly one of shock and dismay and um, an outpouring of appreciation for Lincoln. Many of the Democratic newspapers that had opposed him and attacked him so strongly during the war uh, now spoke in much more generous terms about the uh, fairness of his policies and the contribution that he had made. Uh, it was um, striking to me that some of the major Democratic newspapers spoke about the um, desirability or the, or the uh, logic of giving Black people the right to vote. Uh, you had both the uh, New York Herald, which was always a conservative paper, giving strong arguments for Black suffrage. The New York World, a rabid, black, uh, a rabid uh, Democratic newspaper, uh, believed that it was wise and politic for the South to give the vote to Black people now, and that if this were not done uh, in the future, since slavery had been uh, abolished, uh, this would cause a great difficulty and wouldn't be good for any political system. Uh, some other New York papers uh, also favored black suffrage. Do you have um, any idea of this? Why? Is, is, I mean, a, unless you check the diaries of the of the editors, if they kept them, uh, what what was the reason for this sudden? Uh, this is like a, a this is spitting in the face of everything they've been writing for four for four or five or ten years. I think that uh, it was logic for the New York Herald, uh, for the New York World the logic extended into a longer time horizon in which they were saying that it wouldn't be workable to have a large free population uh, that was denied the right to vote. But the New York uh, world wanted the Southern states themselves to decide this in, in their time, uh, and therefore they weren't insisting on it. Uh, you're right that these were unusual steps for some of the leading democratic newspapers to take. And it wasn't um, very long before the Democratic press was lining up uh, completely against rights for black people. By uh, late May and certainly by June, uh, you have a solid phalanx of black editors and newspapers across the North that are totally opposed to black suffrage. So there's a there's a brief moment of a two weeks, three, four weeks at most where Democratic public opinion is being mobilized to support black suffrage of some kind, limited, over time, gradualist. But then that even that that stops. Yes, and that was not from every Democratic no. newspaper in the North either. Uh, no. Just a few cracks in the uh, solid wall. Yeah. So on the other side, uh, we've got speaking of cracks in the solid wall. Lincoln's actually the government is it what is that's the, the official ticket was the National Union ticket. Um, right. So that that's has to be remembered in the following discussion. Um, it's a very important, uh, I think, distinction to make that I I often forget. Um, not my period. So 
how do Republicans begin then to organize themselves? What are the what are the cracks or what are the unions the, uh, that uh, as they approach black suffrage uh, in the couple of weeks in the weeks after Lincoln's death? Well, first, let me say that while the war was underway, many Republican leaders had become committed to the principle that black men needed the right to vote. And as soon as the war ended, some of these leaders, uh, whether they were men like Charles Sumner or uh, Benjamin Butler or Salmon Chase, seized every opportunity to speak at public commemorations and public celebrations to make the argument for black suffrage. Uh, they uh, began the argument uh, as soon as they could, and they were to continue it. And uh, black news, or rather, uh, Republican newspaper editors reacted to the shift that occurred in the Democratic press, and that was clear by late May and early June, uh, and they lined up in favor of Republican policies, so that by late June or by July, you have the Republican editors arguing for the importance uh, of black suffrage. Uh, and there was uh, quite a bit of support for the idea of black suffrage from the most um, serious magazines and publications in the North. Whether you're talking about the North American Review, the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's Weekly, or the New Englander, uh, you have a, a series of articles and, and uh, essays that argue for the importance of giving the right to vote and protecting the rights uh, to the former slaves. Uh, and the uh, abolitionists became uh, very active, uh, whether they were white or black, uh, and uh, carried out uh, quite a, an impressive campaign. Uh, at the same time, black leaders, again, North and South, are mobilizing and are making the case for black suffrage. Uh, as early as uh, May and then in June, you have former slaves in Virginia and North Carolina and uh, other parts of the South, uh, speaking up for the necessity that they be given the right to vote and, and for the need to uh, have their rights protected. Uh, and there was quite a, an impressive uh, literature campaign that was launched by some of the abolitionists. Um, I might talk for a bit about George Stearns and some of the Please, others there. Go ahead. And then, I wanna, I wanna, and then we finish off. I'd like to also talk about Richard Henry Dana's very uh, amazing, I think, um, the grasp of war speech, which I always love teaching. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh, well, Stearns was a northern abolitionist, a manufacturer from Massachusetts, and uh, he really took the lead in trying to mobilize efforts to promote black suffrage uh, through publications. We should remember here that Congress had adjourned. So the, the Congress was no longer in Washington and newspapers were not going to be reporting on debates in Congress. So into that uh, void stepped Stearns and others to produce a lot of literature that would make the case for black suffrage. Uh, the first thing that Stearns did was to try to create a directory of people who were in favor of black suffrage. He had hoped to identified maybe 2,000 names. He ended up uh, identifying more like 8,000, and he shared this, uh, printed and shared this directory with, with these people. Uh, he sent out 90,000 copies of uh, a selection of some of the best and strongest essays arguing for black suffrage. Then he organized uh, an equal rights association, which uh, before long had 20,000 members, uh, and he, it sent out 10,000 newspapers and 3,000 pamphlets per week. <laughs> um, these efforts from white abolitionists 
uh, worked hand in hand with the kinds of things that, that black leaders were doing. I had mentioned the uh, immediate and really impressive efforts that came from the South. The ability of newly freed black people in the South to organize, hold conventions, draw up important statements and, and send petitions to Congress and letters to congressmen uh, was important evidence of their readiness for freedom and, and their uh, right to have the uh, ballot. Um, but in addition, there was a continuation of this strong leadership from black people in the North. Uh, the convention movement in late 1864 had decided that they needed to form equal rights leagues in every one of the Northern states. And these uh, leagues began to form in late 1864 and early 1865. Um, and in some states, they had as many as 20 or 30 local branches of these. So they were holding uh, assemblies, conventions, making public statements and uh, printing uh, public arguments. Uh, this amounted to a very substantial uh, body of material that would make the case for the importance of black suffrage uh, in those months immediately after Lincoln's death. And the culmination of, say, let's say the New England Republican sort of view of the matter is, as I said, in that Richard Henry Dana's uh, grasp of war speech, which is, um, which is a harsh speech. <laughs> and uh, so part of his idea of the, if I could, just read, read a section of it. He said he argued, as you write, he argued that it was necessary to hold each defeated Southern state in the grasp of war until the state does what we have a right to require of her. Conferring the ballot on former slaves is a revolution, but if we do not secure that now, in the time of revolution, it can never be secured except by a new revolution, which turned out to be very prescient. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a, um, it's a harsh speech. Well, you've brought up an important point. And the fact is that New England patriots were much more realistic, or you, you could say harsh, if you want to call it that, uh, about or what both. they expected, or both. Was, <laughs> what would follow. Um, there was uh, a naivete uh, in some parts of the North about what might happen now that the South was defeated, that things would be different and the Southerners would be cooperative. Uh, but especially in the New England area, you have a much greater realism about that, that the, the white Southerners are likely to try to re-enslave black people or put them in as subordinate a position as possible. And uh, leaders like Dana uh, speak to that uh, idea right from the beginning. It would take a while and it would take some sad developments under Johnson's program of reconstruction to convince uh, other Republicans and, and other people throughout the North that strong measures would be required to avoid losing the peace. Uh, after all of the sacrifices that had been made in the war, uh, it would really make no sense to let the South regain control and uh, dominate the whole reconstruction process. Uh, Republicans as a party, were handicapped in the uh, fact that they didn't want, at least at first, to have an open break with Andrew Johnson. After all, he was the titular head of their party, and he now was the president. Uh, he, their party had nominated him as vice president. They would 
be better off if they could work with him. Uh, so for a long time during the last, uh, during the remaining months of 1865, Republicans are reluctant to openly attack Johnson, but they become um, steadily convinced that his policy of reconstruction in the South is a failure and that Congress is going to have to have the last word and, and would have to intervene. Well, let's let's focus on J- uh, Johnson. Um, as I think we talked about most recently on the podcast, with Clayton Butler uh, about his book, True Blue, uh, the key to thinking uh, thinking about Andrew Johnson is that he is a Southern Democrat. This is a national union ticket in 1864. So the Republicans are looking to their, to their leader is someone who I think I see voted for Stephen Douglas in 1860. Um, and he does not have the same ideology as a, even a border state Republican does. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a very different view of things. So let's 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 quickly uh, let's briskly go through that. What's his view of black black suffrage? He, he's like passionately pro union and passionately. How does he feel about black suffrage? In those several weeks between Lincoln's death and the consolidation of Democratic newspapers against black suffrage by late May, early June, a lot of editors looked into Johnson's record and they found that he was. Uh, pro-Southern and and very racist, and they began to have hopes that uh, he might cooperate with the Democratic Party. Uh, When the cabinet met, as you know, uh, they considered the question of whether in Johnson's reconstruction plans, black people should be allowed to vote. The cabinet split four to four, and Johnson voted against. And we've known for years that uh, Johnson uh, not only was opposed to letting black people vote, but that as 1865 went on, he became uh, more closely identified with and more strongly in support of the white Southern racists who were regaining control under his plan. Uh, I saw as I looked into all of these um, months, though, that Johnson also was ambiguous and deceptive. Uh, He liked to tell people about the fact that during the war, when he was the military governor in Tennessee, he had spoken to a group of black people Uh, who called on him to be their Moses, to lead them into the promised land of freedom. And he had said, I will be your Moses. Uh, And he sometimes uh, suggested that he was in favor of black suffrage if the Southern states decided to do it, that uh, as far as he was concerned, that's what he would do. Uh, This was um, probably the most favorable gloss he could put at any time on his Uh, views, though, because uh, he soon becomes a strong supporter of the white uh, supremacists who are taking power in the South. Uh, And it's really plain before the end of 1865 that uh, Johnson has made his uh, alliance with uh, white racism in the South and does not want uh, black people to have any role. The, um, the the typical explanation that, you know, when I used to teach this section of the survey and had to read up on it, the idea was always that Johnson becomes psychologically enthralled by the the delight of having these powerful men, uh, you know, kiss his ring and bend the knee. I think that's kind of silly. And it's a kind of a silly psychological explanation. Um, when when it, we can go better, we can do better than that, I think. Um, I think that the fact is, is that what he wants them to do is kind of convert to what he had already was, agree with him, 
<laughs> and yes. which and be a unionist, uh, be a unionist Democrat, like as he was. That's all he requires. So it's it's kind of simple. Once the once the war has been fought, a union has been reestablished. Well, then things are good again. Yeah, the fine historian Kenneth Stamp had suggested that maybe Johnson's head was turned by these men who now yeah. were being so nice to him, or that he ran out of time and decided that he wasn't going to allow changes to his plan. But it does seem to me that uh, he really um, was moving in the direction of what he had always been comfortable with. Uh, I think I agree with you that this was uh, what he wanted to see happen uh, from the beginning. Uh, And I think that he was uh, ambiguous and deceptive to keep the rest of the Republican Party from being fully aware of what he was about. Uh So, but this then sets the foundation for what we now neatly, tidily categorize as presidential reconstruction. I don't, I don't know enough to know if it can be so tidily separated. But um, so this is the foundation of presidential reconstruction is union and is sufficient. So as long as a state government recon, uh, recognizes the union, it may reenter. Is that basically it, S- simply enough? Uh, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, he was going to insist that uh, these new governments repudiate the Confederate debt, although he had trouble getting some of them to do even that. Uh, there was <laughs> nobody in the North who wanted to pay a debt for secession and, and civil war. Uh, but in one or two cases, the white governments that he'd called into being were saying that they should pay off the Confederate debt. And he, he had to take a stand once or twice even to get that through. So... This um, Congress again is not in session, right. um, but so, which is uh, I always can never forget when Congress actually is in session in the nineteenth century. But it's very confusing. Um, they have long, long periods of re- recess. Um, but this Johnson's actions over the summer begin to at first irritate, and then anger, and then finally outrage. Even uh, not just Thaddeus Stevens. Um, but more moderate members, uh, more so-called conservative members of the Republican Party. Is that is that correct? That is correct. Um, and uh, one good example that we might cite of that is Schuyler Colfax, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who comes from Indiana. Now, Indiana is one of the most conservative and most racist-leaning states uh, among the Republican Party in the North. Uh, during the uh, elections for uh, governor, uh, at that time, um, Oliver P. Morton uh, took stands against black suffrage. Uh, in fact, he said as he was running for um, uh, election in 1864 that if blacks were given their rights, there would be a serious danger of race war in the South, and he was opposed to it. Morton later would become a very strong advocate for tough measures on the South because he saw that the white Southerners were intransigent and would not cooperate, but he was slow to come to that. And the fact that Schuyler Colfax comes from Indiana uh, and uh, comes out very strongly for taking actions that will support the Declaration of Independence and guarantee freedom and and, uh, equal rights for for people in the North uh, indicated that uh, he and the other Republicans we're seeing what was going on in the South. Uh, and I, I want to emphasize that Black people in the South and in the North were quick to point out uh, how badly Johnson's plan was working and mm-hmm. what it was going to mean in terms of the 
subordination and oppression and uh, relegation to serfdom of the former slaves. Uh, That record of of what's going on in the last half of uh, 1865 uh, has an impact upon the Republican Party in the North and uh, with leaders like Colfax saying, we can't allow that. We, We must stand up for what the war has won. Uh, the Republican Party moves strongly toward uh, opposing uh, Johnson's policies and uh, moving in a new direction. So Johnson succeeds in radicalizing the Republican Party. I mean, this is sort of the, fir- the, the first step of, of Reconstruction is a increasingly radicalized Republican Party. Yes, I think that's true. Um, Johnson uh, really switches over completely in support of what these racist governments in the the South are doing. Um, And one of the clearest examples of that comes right after Congress reconvenes in December. Uh, He transmits to them two reports on what's going on in the South. Now, newspapers had already been reporting what was going on. Republicans who had come back to Washington knew that Johnson's policy was a failure, that it was uh, creating a new kind of slavery uh, in the South. Uh, But these reports came from Ulysses S. Grant on the one hand and Carl Schurz on the other. Grant had made a a brief trip to the South and uh, gave a a, pretty uh, superficial and largely favorable report on what he thought was happening. Uh, He had written a short letter, just a few pages about what he had seen. Carl Schurz, who had been asked by Johnson to make a trip through the South, Uh, insisted before he left that this should be a very substantial uh, investigation. And he presented a a long report of well over 40 pages with appendices and abundant proofs that white supremacists had taken control of these governments, that they were oppressing black people, denying their rights, and creating a new form of of slavery or serfdom. Uh, Johnson said that uh, Grant's report was wonderful. They should read it and pay attention to it. And then he he said, oh, and there's this other report that you can have. Uh, And he said no kind words about it at all. Uh, But the Republicans in Congress uh, certainly could read those reports and they were united that they needed to go forward as a body in opposition to the plan that Johnson had put into uh, action. You said it said that when that the cabinet is split four four, Johnson settles the tie, and this and Lincoln's cabinet is likewise a national union cabinet. There are people that eighteen sixty one, eighteen sixty two people like well, people like in eighteen sixty one, Stephen Douglas, a war Democrat, uh, people who uh, would have been against the eighteen sixty four Democratic uh, convention platform, uh, people like. Uh, the Secretary of Navy, um, uh, people like who who are the who are the people that vote against black suffrage in the cabinet? I mean, how does that reflect sort of the, the 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 basically the breakup of the wartime coalition between war Democrats and Republicans? What you are bringing up goes beyond the um, the, the the fragile commitment of war Democrats to the union cause and to changing things in a substantial way. The fact is that within the Republican Party, there were racist elements. Many uh, who had come into the Republican Party came from the Democratic Party. So you have the Blair family as a good example. Uh, They 
uh, were anti-slavery, but they were insistent that black people needed to be removed from the United States, that they could not be a part of the polity or of the society. And with people like the, the Secretary of the Navy, these are people who were racist and who felt slavery was bad, but who had little sympathy for black people and were, were not in favor of uh, making black people equal members of the, the American system. Uh, the Republican Party uh, had to deal with this uh, during the war. And uh, the, the division comes from members of the, the cabinet who had this racist background and who personally affirmed that they didn't want to have anything to do with black people. They didn't want them at their table or uh, to be working with them. Uh, and other Republicans uh, who uh, maybe weren't uh, quite so personally adamant in their racism, but uh, who were less supportive of uh, a role for black people that would be similar to that of white citizens. Um, so uh, the Republican Party itself is making a transition during the war. And uh, that is reflected in that vote uh, of the cabinet mm -hmm. that's divided on whether black people should have the right to vote. Well, surely there must be some Democrats whose primary objective, uh, primary objection to um, black suffrage is uh, they don't want to have to keep fighting. Um, that this was a war for determining the, 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 that the union uh, shouldn't be sacrificed, um, that uh, any further measures would lead to a, a continuation of the conflict. Um, well, that reminds me of an important event in the summer of 1864 that is often overlooked. Um, in our desire to be proud of our history and to uh, praise Lincoln for all of the good things he did. We have often mythologized Lincoln or the war. And one event that is often overlooked is what happened in the summer of 1864. Uh, before Sherman conquered Atlanta, the North was very discouraged by what was going on in the war. Uh, there was the, the long slog in Virginia between Grant and, and Lee Grant knew that eventually he was going to outlast Lee, but in the meantime, the casualty lists were just huge, and they were uh, the numbers of people wounded and dead were rolling in every week. Uh, little was heard for a long time from Georgia and from Sherman as to whether he was making any progress. So um, when Horace Greeley tried to promote uh, a peace negotiation with some Confederate commissioners that had been sent to Canada near Niagara Falls, Lincoln said that he would be willing to meet with them if they were to discuss the, the reunion um, and uh, 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 I'm, I'm not sure I can recall his exact words now, but it was the and the end of slavery. Uh, and immediately there was an outcry saying that um, we had been told that emancipation was merely a measure to win the war, that it was a military means, and that it was not something that would be required for peace. Um, Lincoln actually drafted a statement that would have uh, tried to, to put fog over all of that and indicate that just because he had said that he would talk to people who were willing uh, to uh, do away with slavery, that didn't mean that he would fail to entertain proposals that, that uh, suggested something less. He eventually decided uh, on the advice of Frederick Douglass and others not to say that, but his allies said it. The New York Times said it. Um, and there was a, a real concern there that 
uh, maybe the Republicans would lose the fall elections if they insisted upon the end of mm-hmm. slavery. When uh, we're openly insisting on it, I think. I think. I, I think. I just think this is. Uh, I, I I see that as just a moment which indicates the deep deviousness. Uh, what's the, what's the line uh, that, about Jefferson? He had the, the truly the deep deviousness of the pure at heart. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but and, and, but Lincoln is uh, Lincoln's deeply devious about those things, and I think that he does not want to ever say in public at, at before the election that what he's going to do. Well, when Sherman um, took Atlanta, and yeah. it, it then was clear the war would be won, the Republicans uh, went to victory in 1864, and from that moment of, of doubt and concern and anxiety, the Republicans became much more uh, ambitious that we should now go forward. We, we now have a mandate, we're going to win the war, and we need to, to uh, win the peace. Yeah. So the elections of November... 1865, which again is part of the congressional schedule. That doesn't make any sense to us now, but congressional elections happened on a different time frame and over a different period, um, which always greatly complicates uh, matters. So uh, Republicans persist by the fall. They're persisting in their uh, and increasing in their support for black suffrage. So, so first of all, why? Why does that? Why why do you think their support for black suffrage increases by September rather than diminishes? Why does Johnson not succeed in putting basically a damper on that 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 movement? I would say that in the first place, it's due to principle and to the uh, arguments and publicity that had been developing all through this period, the, the campaign that was underway to make the case for black suffrage. But in addition. Uh, a very important fact is that the Republicans were seeing what was going on in the South mm-hmm. uh, and how um, Johnson's plan was off track. Uh, it was pr- putting back into power the same rebels who had uh, broken the Union and created a Confederacy. And these people were now um, creating uh, constitutions and legislating uh, to put black people in a very subordinate position so that almost nothing would have changed uh, from the, the war. Republicans ask, uh, what is it that we have made all these sacrifices for if we are going to uh, allow the South to uh, reestablish the situation that it had had, the situation that caused us so much trouble over so much, such a long time? Um, that definitely had a, a major influence on the Republicans uh, and convinced them that they were going to have to uh, move ahead with stronger measures. The Democratic press uh, was saying exactly the opposite, that uh, Johnson's policy was a great success, there was uh, nothing to worry about, uh, and that uh, we should simply uh, let these these states back in and, and uh, declare that, that Reconstruction was over. But Republicans could see that that would not be a solution to the problems that were developing. I'm sorry, I, I, this had not occurred to me before, but how exactly do, I mean, obviously there are no primaries up until uh, the late 1960s. So how are local, how, what are the elections in the, in the fall of 1865? How are people selected for this? So are, are they, are, who's selecting between say anti-black suffrage and pro-black suffrage candidates? Who, how, who's getting to do that? Well, it, the results varied from state to state. Most of the states in the North 
through the, you know their normal political procedures, were putting forward the the politicians who either were established or who were rising uh, stars and appealing uh, faces, um, and the uh, Republican Party in general was speaking out strongly as these fall elections occurred in favor of uh, black rights and black voting uh, and. Uh, uh, creating a, a government that, that honored the Declaration of Independence. But there were a few states where some prominent Republican leaders uh, were racist in their views and were influential. For example, in Wisconsin, you had James Doolittle, a senator, who had been um, an insistent advocate for colonization all through the war, even to the extent of giving long speeches in Congress in which he tried to claim or to prove that you could uh, corral enough steamships over enough period of time to uh, load them up with enough black people to actually remove millions of black people from the United States over some reasonable period of time. Uh, in Wisconsin, uh, he was influential. I mentioned too that in uh, Indiana, Oliver Morton uh, was not in favor of black rights and uh, he becomes the candidate for, for governor. Ohio, too, is another state where Jacob Cox, uh, a former general, uh, takes a, a very, um, very unclear position. Uh, he had talked about the, the idea of maybe colonizing black people within the United States, identifying an area such as Florida, which was largely unsettled, uh, and seeing if uh, black people as a whole could be moved there. Um, when Cox was deeply criticized for that by other uh, Republican newspapers, uh, he then just tried to uh, avoid the issue. But uh, in, in those states, uh, you didn't have uh, leaders who were coming out in favor of uh, black suffrage, and uh, they ended up uh, being a, a sign of uh, weakness within the Republican Party on this point. Not all so, Republicans were ready to move forward. Right. So um, how, how, do, how long do these elections go on? They, they, they begin in like October, don't they? I mean, they're, they're almost, they always strike me as the sort of like a, in, in modern, uh, the modern United Kingdom, the, the sort of by-elections uh, that everyone's, everyone's waiting for the news from like the second district in Indiana, uh, just to see which way the wind is blowing. They're tossing, you know, chaff in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, it seems like there was kind of a, a rolling uh, period yeah. of election days from late October to the end of November. But yeah. uh, by then, you, you pretty much knew what had happened everywhere. Uh, and the 1864 fall elections were overall a great victory for the Republican Party. The eight, 1865 or 1864? I'm sorry, 1865. 1865, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, it's clear that the Northern electorate uh, is supporting the Republican Party rather than the Democratic Party. But there were some of these areas of weakness within the Republican Party. And then what was really uh, a death blow to the idea of establishing black suffrage in 1865 was the failure of some constitutional amendments uh, in, some, in three different states. Could you explain that? I mean, what, what, are, what are the constitutional amendments that are up for grabs? I, we should also say that these... Congress will reconvene uh, in December of 1865, but these people who are being elected aren't going to be sitting in that Congress, are they? They're going to they they they're, they're seated in the next Congress. That's right. They won't take their seats until uh, you get into 1866. Right. So, but this is but this is the ultimate. This is in the era before opinion polls. This is the ultimate opinion poll. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, New England was the one area that overall had allowed black people to vote. Um, only a small portion of the small black population of the North lived in New England. Um, it's important for, perhaps for us to remember that in the free states, black people were only about 1% of the whole population. This gives us um, an important fact to remember about how difficult it was going to be for black people to make their voices heard and, and to put their case forward. But New England was one area where black people had been allowed to vote. And the one exception in New England was Connecticut. So Connecticut did have a vote in 1865 on whether black people should be allowed to have the vote. It failed. Uh, Republicans won overall in the state, but not all of them voted in favor of this uh, amendment. And, and therefore, it, uh, it didn't quite pass. The, the same kind of results happened in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Wisconsin and Minnesota were both states that had a tiny black population, really very few people there. But um, again, although Republicans won in general in those states, uh, not all of the Republicans who were voting for senator or congressman or whatever the other major office was, uh, turned out to vote for black suffrage. And as a result, the, the amendments went down to defeat. Um, when that happened, uh, I think people everywhere realized we're not at the point yet where we can can establish black suffrage by federal law. Uh, and it would take uh, the subsequent events in uh, 1866 and 1867 to convince the Northern Congress, the Republican Northern Congress, that it was time to demand stronger measures of the South. Congress reconvenes, 1865. Um, they've received a mixed message. <laughs> Um, what do they, um, first of all, what has been Andrew Johnson's response to this? And then what does Congress decide in 18, in December and increasing to 1866, what will they do about Andrew Johnson? Uh, Johnson, uh, I believe had decided bef by the end of December that he was going to go against the Republican majority in Congress. Uh, his treatment of those reports from, Ulysses S. Grant and Charles Schurz uh, show that. The Republicans in Congress were clear that they wanted to move ahead. Um, when they first reassembled, Democratic editors expected that there would be signs of uh, division within the Republican Party. But it turned out that uh, they had their caucus. They were 100% united. They stood with Schuyler Colfax on the need to uh, establish rights for people. And uh, the Republicans were ready to move forward, but they were still hoping to avoid an outright break with Johnson. Uh, as you probably know, early in 1866, they decided uh, to propose that the Freedmen's Bureau would continue, and they also passed a civil rights bill, which didn't include voting rights, but would guarantee sort of basic civil rights for people in the South, whether they were white or black, free or slave in, in the past. And Johnson vetoed both of those bills. At that point, it's clear that there is not going to be cooperation between Johnson and the Republican Party. And the Republicans in Congress go ahead and pass uh, those bills over his veto and continue to move forward. Uh, and as violence uh, erupts in the South and uh, stringent black codes are passed by this, these Southern legislatures that uh, 
basically deny um, citizenship rights to black people, the Northern Congress moves ahead and uh, eventually passes the Military Reconstruction Act of 1867, which is going to require that black people be allowed to vote in creating new governments for the South. And we often, I guess that's often called congressional reconstruction, but in a way, congressional reconstruction begins with a moment that those vetoes are overridden. Yes, I would agree. That's that's when the, the break is clear and Congress is asserting its authority. Uh, the Republicans had felt all through uh, 1865 that Congress was going to have to have the last word on these things. They were hoping for a long time that Johnson might develop a good policy. Uh, they lost faith in him uh, and they didn't speak out uh, more loudly and sooner than, than they did, I believe because they, they were convinced that they would have their, their chance to uh, weigh in on policy once they reassembled in December of 1865. Mm-hmm. Um, so black suffrage fails in 1865, and yet a political culture has been developed, if we're thinking in deeper terms than just sort of uh, the, the horse race of the politics. There is, in effect, a deep political culture, uh, not just from the one, not just from blacks, white and South, but increasingly among white Republicans, a culture that demands the idea of black male suffrage. Is that is that fair? That's the result of eight, the end of it by the end of eighteen sixty five. I mean, this is a foundation without nothing else is, without which nothing else is possible. Well, I think that that is uh, a very important fact. Um, if you look at, Demo- at the Democratic press, uh, there's no reporting going on about the uh, impressive efforts by black leaders in the North and in the South to stand up for their rights, to make the case for their, uh, uh, for their right to, to, to have uh, the ballot and to participate as citizens uh, in the country. But um, in the Republican press, there's a lot of evidence about this and the activity of black people, North and South, is very impressive. Uh, the convention movement, as I mentioned, had created these equal right leagues, uh, and they meet all through the North. They have um, convention after convention, assembly after assembly. They make their statements. Uh, the black leaders in the South um, are coming together in cities uh, and in conventions and presenting evidence of the progress that they have made as a community. The um, they appeal to the Christian values of uh, white citizens. They argue that they can make a contribution, as they have already, in, in saving the Union. And the record of this is truly a, a good documentary record of the fitness and readiness of uh, black people for a role in the government as voters and as citizens. So this uh, creates a, a, a culture that I'm sure um, was affecting at least Republicans. Yeah. Uh, many Democrats Democrats were denying it or not hearing about it. I always was struck when I when I finally read Reconstruction history. That growing up in, in and near Philadelphia, I was the Union League is the fusty, disgusting, ugly brown building just south of Philadelphia Hall on Broad Street. <laughs> but then when you read Reconstruction, you realize that the Union League is actually like a a. They're like the Masons of Reconstruction. It's a politically vibrant movement, with it, which is influencing black political activism throughout the South and mm-hmm. organizing blacks politically in the South. So that's that's an example of this very very Tocquevillian 
of these sort of um, societies uh, within civil society that are organizing for ultimately political, grand political change. And the um, sophistication of black leaders uh, who were recruited uh, with, with the Union League and who emerged uh, in these southern communities is quite, quite impressive. Uh, I often had my students read a, a memorial that black people in North Carolina put forward to the con- Constitutional Convention that Johnson had called into being. And it was a very sophisticated document because it appealed to Christian values, to fairness, uh, to uh, the idea that, that black people uh, had, um, whether it was by coercion or otherwise, had contributed to the Confederacy and had done, you know, had done their part, e- even as they were praying for freedom. Um, but it, it also made uh, arguments that they wanted to be uh, productive citizens of North Carolina and to gain the, the trust and the uh, approval of their white neighbors because they were going to be hardworking uh, citizens mm-hmm. and, and uh, obedient and, and loyal to the uh, laws of the land. Um, they even said that they realized that uh, northern troops would not stay in the South uh, forever. But they said, isn't it in your interest that we become productive citizens and help North Carolina advance? Um, if we are not allowed to be productive citizens, we will be a drag on the pro- progress I- of the state. That sounds like they're quoting from Booker T. Washington 30 years after. <laughs> well, that part of the argument, yeah, yeah. is uh, similar to the arguments that he made. Yeah. Um, let us help you advance North Carolina instead of dragging it down. And yes, that's the sort of argument that Booker T. Washington made as well. It, it's in your self-interest to, to that we thrive. What is sophisticated um, about that is that these North Carolina black leaders realized that they were going to be receiving in the immediate future some help from the North, but they could not count on it for the long run and in every single respect. They, they were right that the North was not fully committed to seeing their, their cause through. And uh, they knew that even before the end of 1865. It's extraordinary. Well, my guest today has been Paul Escott. He's the author of Black Suffrage, Lincoln's Last Goal. Paul Escott, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 